0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Compound Thesis, where we discuss the intersection of crypto and the capital markets. I'm Jim Hiltner, and I'm the head of sales at Compound, and super excited to be joined today by Tarun Chitra. He's the founder and CEO of Gauntlet. And for those of you who don't know, Gauntlet is a financial modeling platform. And they use battle-tested techniques from algo trading industry to inform on-chain protocol management. And they help protect over $38 billion in TVL. Gauntlet is trusted by many of the leading DeFi protocols out there, including Compound, Tarun. Welcome to the show. Hey, excited to be here. So, uh, before diving in too much on uh, you know uh, all of the topics we wanted to cover today, just for our viewers who might not be familiar with Gauntlet, can you share a little bit about the mission and the problem that you guys are going after, and then a little bit about your background as to why you left Wall Street to start Gauntlet?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, I think. Our, our, our real mission is to sort of help drive adoption and understanding in kind of these new complex financial vehicles that uh, you know we all kind of interact with in crypto every day, and you know our way of doing that is to try to use as much off-chain logic as possible and off-chain analysis to help improve on-chain efficiency. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, blockchains are amazing for being fully trustless. Uh, But there is, you know, it's expensive to do computation there. So being able to kind of augment that computation, uh, augment sort of the behavior of a lot of these assets with off-chain logic and off-chain computation is really important to improving their efficiency, reducing risk, monitoring protocols, uh, things of that nature.
0: And so you you came from Wall Street, right? And, you know, viewers might not recognize, you know, with your hair and your glasses. But, you know, as you came from Wall Street into this space, what kind of made you uh, make the jump?
1: Yeah, so I think a, a great question. So so basically, I spent the last 11 years working on sim, simulation based research. First, I actually worked at a place called D. Shaw Research. Uh, we built custom hardware um, and my first exposure to cryptocurrencies was in 2011. We were taping out an ASIC that we were building. So an a- ASIC is an application-specific integrated circuit, sort of custom hardware that you build. Uh, we were taping out an ASIC. So taping out is when you you know you send your design to a fab in Taiwan, uh, or or China or Singapore or sorry uh, South Korea, and uh, you know are we sent we we gave one of our suppliers twenty five million dollars. We gave them our designs, and then they ghosted us for six months. And uh, that was sort of when we learned about Bitcoin ASIC mining, like people building custom hardware to do proof-of-work mining. And that sort of led me into kind of trying to understand what was going on in crypto. Fast forward to 2016, 2017, um, I was working in high-frequency trading. And one of the interesting things was, you know, I was starting to read a lot about proof-of-stake protocols, you know, like what Ethereum just moved to. And one interesting thing was people sort of ignored a lot of the financial risks in their modeling. They had amazingly cool cryptography that provided all sorts of new features. But there was sort of this assumption that proof of work, like burning energy for, for making Bitcoin, was the same as sort of proof of stake staking a digital asset and sort of rehypothecating it. And that sort of led me down the rabbit hole of how do you, you know, build tools to measure when these two assets are different. Because I think at that time in 2017, especially during the ICO boom, people didn't really kind of care. And then, you know, when I would tell people who were making layer ones, they were like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Uh, Do you want to work for us? And for some reason I found everyone who made a layer one in 2017 somewhat sketchy, you know, coming from finance, working with all these like PhDs and mainly people from like MIT, Harvard and Stanford, meeting some of the people who are doing ICOs in 2017 was like a very big uh, shock to my system uh, (laughs) in some ways. But I was like, you know, clearly they're working on really cool problems that I think the, you know, AI and finance worlds kind of didn't know existed. And because like people hadn't figured out how to formulate the math correctly. And that sort of led me down this rabbit hole. And in the process, what happened is I started consulting for a bunch of different uh, protocols that raised in 2017 and uh, at some point basically by summer 2018 uh, Facebook sort of tried to buy my one person acquire my one-person consultancy and that's when I was like you know what if people if there are this many people who care about financial risk but they also haven't haven't figured out what they well, you know what exactly it's going to be um, helping bring tools from trading, to help model risk is really important. And remember in 2018, this is pre-defi. Like the right. note name DeFi didn't exist. Uh, I think, you know, compound was just getting started with V1. Dharma existed around that time. Uh, in fact, if you said the phrase decentralized finance, people would probably just say zero X and mm. they wouldn't know anything else in the in the space. There was, there was not like the concept didn't like crystallize. And, and you know the name was only even made sort of in 2019. Um, Uniswap only, you know, hadn't launched yet, for instance. Right. And so it was sort of a, a different world. And then once DeFi really took off, it became really clear that a lot of the financial modeling things that I had thought proof of stake protocols would need were actually, you know, 10 times more important in DeFi, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, for a lot of these assets, when they're newer assets, the primary venues for trading and lending and, you know, getting leverage on them are, were on chain. And, and we're not as centralized exchanges. And so that changed the entire risk profile quite a bit. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time tooling, building tools around doing kind of these simulations of different types of users in the system, run, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of simulations and say like, okay, like under these different conditions, you should expect that this type of user, you know, the bad borrowers won't cause more than X amount of loss to lenders. Um, if we make the fee this high, we make the reserves this high, then we should be able to cover you know a, a 90% drawdown, um, things like that. So like a lot of the stuff you would do in normal finance um, still applies. I think the key thing here is that because it's permissionless and you can't actually really, really say that much about a single user's address, you have to do a lot more modeling of like the entire space of users versus just trying to be like, this is the set of bad lenders or bad borrowers. a set of okay borrowers, set of good borrowers. This is one of the reasons why I think, in general, in permissionless systems, you know, the concept of credit scoring, you know, doesn't quite work. Um, I mean, there are lots of ways to attempt to do it, but I think, you know, one of the reasons we haven't seen many protocols that do things like that work versus, you know, the over collateralized models like Compound. Is because permissionless systems are just hard to, to do that type of stuff in. But I think the idea is if you can slowly over time build the actuarial standards for how to, you know, understand the things about finance that change in the permissionless world versus the things in finance that are the same, you can actually, you know, start to get a way better handle on risk. And that that's really what we do. And, you know, we've written 25 to 30 papers on, you know, basically the theory of why I'm um, automated market makers work, you know, when, you know, how to think about setting certain parameters and lending protocols, how to sort of hedge exposures for protocols. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the, the idea, but
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lots of, I mean, uh, you know, from an initial rug pull, it seems like into, you know, kind of where you're at now. A uh, lot has is, lot is changed, especially in DeFi, as you mentioned, you know, it was, wasn't even a concept before that. And so, you know, we just left an interesting month, you know, Hacktober, I guess you could call it. A uh, lot, lot happened in the DeFi space. You know, I think almost a billion dollars was stolen from protocols. And, um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, some of the attacks uh, that took place. You have an interesting vantage point as you're kind of helping evaluate the safety and soundness of different protocols, whether it's lending, trading or, you know, other types of DeFi applications. So, um, you know, curious from your vantage point, like what can protocols learn from incidents like the mango markets incident? How might that be different than than others we've seen um, and just kind of general you know, guidance for how protocols might think about risk management policies going forward?
1: Yeah, for sure. And and I I wasn't laughing at the lost funds. I was laughing at the phrase Hacktober. I think that's the first time I heard that. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I I do feel like the last couple of months, at least for DeFi versus Bridges, has been um, a bit more nuanced. I think, you know, one, you know, if we take a step back, the two biggest benefits of DeFi that just absolutely do not exist in traditional finance, and they could exist in traditional finance, but I actually think that a combination of sort of regulatory and technological replacement hurdles basically mean that no one will ever do these types of things in traditional finance. The two things are the permissionlessness and and composability. And composability is, you know, a, a, a really good tool if you know how to use it. And it's a really good way to shoot yourself in the foot if you don't know how to use it. And one really, really important thing I think that we need to consider is that market conditions in cryptocurrencies change really, really quickly. And they change quickly in a way that can impact many protocols all at once. Um, and I think the, the mega markets uh, attack, which you know I'll, I'll give a sort of brief summary of in a second, is a really good example of, of sort of the multimodal nature of how you have to think about risk in crypto versus how you have to think about risk as say a bank or a financial institution or even a prop trading firm. Um, and so the mango markets incident is, uh, you know, I think in, you know, if we take a tiny step back in history in 2019, um, the way, one of the ways FTX really, uh, grew as an exchange for, you know, to being a top three or four exchange was they introduced a, 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 exchange token, which basically was, Hey, if you own this token, you get some percentage of the exchanges fees. Um, and what they did was they said, Hey, actually, you know, they sold it to market makers at a discount. And then they said, Hey, look, you can use this as collateral. Right. And, you know, when the market's going up, that's great because, you know, people, market makers are able to get more leverage uh, the collateral is going up so they can continue to, to, to take to larger bets and operate and not get liquidated. Um, but then, you know, of course, the market turned, and in a centralized exchange like FTX, of course, you, we've actually just seen this in the last few weeks. Uh, they've like reduced significantly the amount of leverage and earnings potential of FTT. Um, and so, I, I think like a centralized exchange has this vantage point of like they can just turn off the the, the collateral if they need to. But in in the case of a decentralized protocol, you need the community to actually be monitoring how different collateral types are doing. So I think in the peak bull market, like Mango was really started in in sort of absolute peak bull market. Um, you know, everyone who was starting a new protocol said, "Hey, like let's just like let you borrow against our native currency uh, the same way you could borrow against USDC, like the same sort of margin requirements, effectively." Right uh and you know of course that works in the up market that's a great way to to get usage um but the down market that doesn't work and one of the interesting things is M- mango markets had basically made no changes to any of their parameters um over time and one of the interesting things is is mango the token went from being you know 500 million dollar market cap hundreds you know 50 to 100 million dollar volume per day asset to a you know $50 million market cap, $4 million a day asset. And suddenly it becomes a lot cheaper to manipulate the price at mm-hmm. that point. And so, you know, what the attacker did was they manipulated the price. They made the collateral seem worth a lot more to the protocol. They borrowed as many assets against that as possible from the protocol. And then, you know, they Mango token price crashed. Um, and moreover, Mango actually has an insurance fund. And so protocols that want to offer leverage on more illiquid tokens, oftentimes we'll have an insurance fund so that if you know, lenders, if, if there's a bunch of liquidations, lenders can, can be covered by those, by the insurance fund. But the thing is their insurance fund was almost 80 plus percent denominated in Mango. Mm. And so it went to zero also at exactly the time
0: that- and they needed, the most. <laughs> needed it the most.
1: So I, I think there's a, a bunch of lessons here. One, one is that you have to be monitoring these protocols in a way that is similar to centralized exchanges. Mm-hmm. Two, you have to also account for actors who you can't reverse the actions of. So, exchanges actually have had, you know, both Binance and FTX in particular have had market manipulation incidents, and they they halt the exchange and refund the users, right? Or they block the user who did the manipulation. Um, but in DeFi, you can't do that, right? You have to understand this idea of permissionless actor who could do that and build that into your assumptions about how you think about risk in these systems. And so combining those things, you know, you have to think a lot about capital buffers, you have to think about permissionlessness, you have to think about composability of like how these different protocols interact with each other. How does the Oracle that's telling the price interact with the actual protocol? How does the market that you're able to trade the other asset on interact with the, the, the main leverage in the system? and really, really carefully understanding how these things behave in isolation and how they work together. And you know, in isolation, you may be able to really analyze them mathematically. And you know, that's what a lot of our sort of papers are to give you an idea of how do you isolate, analyze a single thing in isolation. But in practice, when you know, this is a complex system with many moving parts and things like that, you have to analyze via simulation. That's, that's what you do in, in prop trading and algo trading. I think the interesting analogy of risk management in DeFi versus in traditional finance is it looks a lot more like algo trading. So in algo trading, you sort of have this, you know, zero sum game more or less of like all the big funds or all the big prop shops who are in one particular market. And most of the time they spend, you know, modeling is modeling how they think other users, other traders in the system are going to behave in response to their trade and I think in normal traditional finance, when you think about someone who's say an ETF underwriter or a broker, they don't quite have to think about this adverse selection cost in the same way uh, as much as algo traders do. And in DeFi, the difference is everyone is an algo trader. The protocol itself is an algo trader, right? It has an algorithm that it's trading and holding a portfolio against. Each user has a particular set of portfolios. And so being really, really careful about uh Understanding these adverse selection costs, being able to glue them together, being able to model them correctly, that's super, super important. This is one of the reasons we are very slow and diligent about making sure we take time on bridged assets, because, of course, the bridges, as we've seen with, you know, the I think bridge hacks in total have been over a billion dollars now. Right. If, I, if I'm correct. Yeah, I think so. And and so you know, there's there's certainly a lot of other types of risk there because you're sort of inheriting composability risks from the source chain, say Ethereum, and the destination chain, say Solana. And instead of you know, let's say there's like ten risks on Ethereum and ten risks on Solana, you don't just get twenty risks. You actually get a hundred risks or more. You get the product of those two. And and so because of that, you have to be extremely extremely careful
0: um, when when but- yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, you you touched on a bunch of items there that I'm I'm sure the protocols that you work with benefit obviously from you know your expertise and just the insight that you're bringing from a risk management perspective. But I can imagine that you know for like the mango example, like you like you said, the difference between that and the centralized exchange, is you just can't you know have a single operator go and you know halt the exchange, refund the borrowers. There's a whole community that has to get involved in not only, you know, responding to these types of events, but preventing them and being proactive about it. So, you know, you work with a lot of different protocols. And so kind of switching gears a little bit more towards like the blocking and tackling that you do to actually engage with these communities. How do you approach and start working with them? And and what are some of the challenges that you see existing in this new world of like b to dao uh, you know, working as, a, as, a, as an entity with a community um, and, you know, being able to actually, you know, set up these types of, uh, systems and 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 providing expertise with a decentralized community as the decision maker for engaging with any kind of service providers.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the things that we fundamentally feel like is important um, is being really transparent in methodology and being able to like write the research of describing kind of the phenomenology uh, that you find in these systems and being able to verify you know, how well does theory perform in practice? What things get, does it get right? What things does it get wrong? And what things do you need to correct for? Um, and so I think a lot of, you know, our work has actually been, you know, we've, we've just done a lot of research on protocols. We've kind of both empirically and theoretically, and, you know, we, we publicly post all of our research uh, as soon as we do it. And, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, writing posts in the forums, writing sort of content on, on different types of risk management strategies. And, you know, I think it it's certainly a new world of figuring out how, how these engagements work. But I think our goal is to sort of be the professional, uh, quantitative, neutral third party for every DAO, where we, you know, we're really, really focused on making sure the quantitative rigor means that, you know, the community gets the, the clearest view before they make a vote. I would say the biggest thing that's uh, kind of, you know, uh, an obstacle is obviously voter participation. Um, You know, if you think about a normal bank, let's say Goldman, it's not like Warren Buffett. Well, I guess he doesn't own that much of Goldman. But but let's say Warren Buffett owned 10% of Goldman Sachs. It's not like Warren Buffett goes and votes on, you know, the collateral requirements for like Goldman's, you know, lending you know, collateralized lending arm, right? Um, So there's kind of this interesting thing, I think with DAOs of like how delegation, how sort of risk powers work um, in a world where kind of you can't feasibly as these protocols get more and more complex. It is hard to imagine that token holders are going to be voting on every single decision. Um, That being said, I think there's a lot of really interesting new structures that people have been working on to try to help, trade- off this this trade-off between like how much voter engagement you need versus making sure that you can still be credibly decentralized people can kind of have their voice heard in many ways. But I think at the end of the day, cryptocurrency provides just so many new experiments for shareholder behaviors. Um, you know I think a lot of shareholder behaviors in the normal markets, including sort of activist investing and things like that, they're sort of constrained, right? Like you you actually can't use the asset directly. You have to sort of go to the board, lobby the board, get the board to do something, right? But the beauty of of, of DeFi is somehow, you know, the token holders could vote on a buyback and they have 100% guaranteed certainty that the buyback will get executed as a single transaction they can verify. You definitely don't get that in normal finance. When, when you vote for a buyback, you vote for a buyback, it's a recommendation to the board. Then the board has to go find a broker, then the broker has to go like source the, the and like it's it's extremely inefficient. And that's that's where the like lack of composability in finance normal finance really hampers it. And so I think trying to work, you know, take advantage of these features to make you know tokens have these this type of natural utility that. They just don't have a normal finance, I think, will, will be the thing that helps scale this type of stuff. But, yeah, I, I think, like, being able to communicate kind of complicated, uh, you know, math and data analysis about these protocols to have a large community of token holders and to have
0: tons of, you know, voter participation is certainly a a, a challenge, I would say. Yeah, no, it absolutely is, and I'm just as you were mentioning that I'm envisioning, envisioning, you know, Warren Buffett voting on credit standards for Marcus's credit card. Uh, <laughs> just,
1: yeah, that's a great, great example.
0: Right?
1: <laughs> it's like hard to imagine that, right?
0: It really is, but I'm, um, but you know, I mean, the beauty of decentralization is that the community gets to participate in the in the in the protocol. But at the same time, you're right. There's a trade-off there in terms of, you know, how to get the right uh, participation in order to effectuate change, and you know, communicating all of the great opportunities uh, across the community with the transparency that you guys bring to the table, I think is a tremendous asset um, so that there's visibility into, uh, you know, how to move a, a protocol forward. But at the same time, there's there's a lot to digest for a lot of uh, token holders um, to be able to make changes to, to, to move quickly. Um, so you also like just, uh, I know we only have a couple minutes left, but you guys launched uh, your own protocol this year or a few, a few weeks ago, uh, Era Finance, which is, you know, focused on, um, treasury management for protocols. So, um, you know, you, you. I would love for you to lay out just the problem that you guys are trying to address. Um, why are you bringing this to market now? And and how can you compare like DAO treasury management similar to the way we just talked about like shareholder voting and getting the board to effectuate change? Uh, you know, uh, how does that apply to treasury management for a DAO versus like a traditional corporate?
1: Yeah. So I think um, you know this kind of dovetails with your previous question of like, you know voter participation and how do you kind of, um, kind of can be able, how are you able to get sort of like active participation, active decision-making while also not overwhelming, um, you know, participants in the network. And the goal of ERA is sort of, is twofold. So one thing that, you know, we've observed in a lot of protocols is that of all the decisions that have to be made that involve money, treasury management and diversification is the hardest. And one of the reasons for that is you're effectively asking token holders to vote on selling mm-hmm. the asset that they're voting with, right? It's like, I, 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 let's say I own Comp and I want the Comp Treasury to diversify into stable coins because it will help in case there's some emergency. Well, I have, I have to use Comp to vote on selling Comp, having the DAO, the biggest holder, sell Comp, right? It, 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 there's sort of this n- very weird incentive and, and disincentive in a lot of ways. And another thing is that Dow governance is not a very good risk manager. You know, if I, if I think about the U.S. Congress, you know, what, what are there, like a thousand proposed bills a year or something like that at most? You know, when I think about a, a asset manager that's hedging its portfolio, you know, they're doing probably six to nine orders of magnitude more transactions, trades than that, right? They're, they're doing millions or billions of transactions a year, whether it's directly them doing it or the internalizer who, who does the, the TWAP stuff like that. So there's, there's significantly more transactions um, and obviously governance can only do some of them. And so one question you might ask is like, how do you do sort of treasury management in a decentralized way? And so our way of, of really thinking about this is, How do you make this as much of a market where people are competing to try to make the DAOs sort of long-term goals with their treasury uh, align the assets that they own? And so I think the simplest case, and we, you know, we we definitely got this idea from, from working a lot with lending protocols, is that lending protocols, just like banks, have this problem of asset liability mismatches. So the liabilities, you know, are the borrowed... Uh, currencies that people are borrowing. Uh, and the assets are, you know, the collateral assets you have, plus, you know, the treasury assets. And so there's always, you know, in, in a normal bank, you would, you would usually hedge by holding some sort of either some types of options or some types of swaps to kind of hedge some of your borrowed risk. And one of the reasons to do this, again, is you could improve your capital efficiency quite dramatically because... You, you know you bought protection at a time when it was cheaper, and then you you know when, when there was a bad event, you're able to exercise it as needed. So the idea is to have many people compete to give recommendations for how the DAO should be uh, spending its treasury. And then the beauty of of cryptocurrency and, and smart contracts in general is that you can actually be graded on chain uh, for how well you did. So you know people give their recommendations. They get aggregated into a a single portfolio. The Dow trades into that portfolio. And then based on the performance and the performance might not just be, Hey, did we make a ton of yield? It might actually be, did we cover our liabilities really well? And then they get graded. And so, you know, they get fees or they get penalized like slash if they basically, you know, caused some type of loss. So the idea is to like incentivize participants in the network, to optimize a DAO's sort of KPIs or goals. And so that's that's really the, the main focus of the protocol. And the idea is protocols like lending protocols might care about asset liability mismatches. Protocols like staking derivatives might care, like, like Lido Finance might care more about sort of runway management uh, overall and, and like sort of how, how much should they actually sell continuously, should they do buybacks, stuff like that. Uh, in a more continuous manner. Um, and other protocols might just have totally different different objectives with their assets. And so the idea is to really try to decentralize the allocation problem of w- how you allocate your assets um, in a way that is still decentralized and that people are competing and there's no kind of single entity that kind of dictates the, the treasury composition
0: yeah, I mean, I'm, I would love to peel back so many layers of that onion, um, which we could probably do in a whole entire other episode, um, just on kind of different sides of that market, who the participants are on the asset management side and, and you know, what the different strategies that you see are, uh, you know, people would be presenting to DAOs and uh, how DAOs might be thinking about allocating. But uh, really interesting to see um, you guys expanding other services to market based off of, you know, challenges you're seeing from, from your client base, which are, you know, the folks like Compound that are, uh, you know, facing these challenges on a regular basis. And the, the incentives that you outlay makes a ton of sense. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. Again, we're going to have to do another one of these episodes soon, but that's all we have for today. Any closing thoughts? Um,
1: you know, I think the main closing thought is in spite of all, all of kind of these, the, the, the risks in DeFi, there's just so many cool things you can do. And hopefully I tried to illustrate some of them and, and hopefully that you know, people who who are kind of new to DeFi can 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 appreciate this.
0: Yeah, you know, I I wasn't trying to spook everybody with the Hacktober comment, but uh, <laughs> had to address it just considering all the recent events and appreciate your insights on that. So, um, absolutely agree. Uh, super excited to to continue uh, building in this space with you. But thanks again, and thanks for everybody tuning in. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Yeah.